0: time for true confessions in Sunday school. How many of you read Philippians this last week? Okay, put your hand. How many of you read one chapter at least in Philippians this last week? Okay, put your hands down. For the rest of you, when are you going to repent? <laughs> you what? How many Hail Marys? <laughs> yeah. no, let's not go there. But, uh, yes, yes. Um, so, yeah, just a friendly reminder um, that uh, part of participating in this class is reading the book of Philippians on a weekly basis. If you say, there's no way I can read a whole four chapters of a very short book in one week, then then we will let you by with one chapter. Um, but especially with books like this, the, the way you really see what the letter is about, what the book is about, is, is familiarity. Uh, a book like Job, remember when we went, some of you went through Job with me, and 42 chapters, okay, and that, that's very hard to read through and get a sense, and that's you have to study a book like that differently. But a book as small as Philippians, um, we want to be able to just read it and go over. I, I told you uh, my former pastor, John MacArthur, when he would prepare for a book, he'd just start reading through it over and over and over and over, and over before he ever got around to preaching it. Um, so keep doing that, and I trust that that time will be uh, a blessing to you. Um, this is a fun book. There's lots of really uh, helpful and life-changing things in here, so uh, let's uh, let's keep our eyes focused on that. Uh, last time, if you weren't here, uh, just by way of review, I'm going to wake up my controller here. Um, can you guys see that screen okay? Is that okay? This is a new screen. It's, it's a little bit smaller than the other one. Um, but uh, we'll try this here. Uh, it, it's nice because it, it doesn't look like it was made in 1975, like the other screen. So um, something about you know metal and, and that, that that what was that color green that everything in the 70s was, you know? Yeah, it's like that. It's not even like mint. It's just like a anyway. Everything was green and made out of metal in those days. But um, okay, so just uh, some background here uh, for those of you that may have missed it last time. The author is Paul. We see that in Philippians chapter one, verse one. Paul and Timothy. Um, Paul wrote the letter. Uh, perhaps uh, Timothy uh, took dictation from Paul and actually was the one to pen it, but uh, the source is Paul. Uh, Timothy was assisting him in that in some way. Uh, the book was written about 62 AD. Um, what, uh, and just by way of review, what event happened around 60 AD that is significant for the study of Philippians? Do you remember? That was not the last year that the Cowboys won the Super Bowl, by the way. That wasn't the, so in case some of you were wondering, I uh, saw that. Uh, come on, let's talk here. It's only been a week. What, what happened in 60 AD? What happened to Paul? Oh, he to yeah, he went to prison. Okay. Remember, he was in Jerusalem. Uh, there was an incident where a Gentile was in a Jewish temple. They went after Paul. Uh, the Jewish leaders had him arrested by the local Roman government. Uh, There was some political changes while he was just held in that uh, sort of judicial system there. Uh, The the first governor was a little more patient and gracious. The second guy came in and wanted to throw the book at him. So at that point, he appealed to Caesar, which was his right as a Roman citizen, which meant he had to travel all the way from Jerusalem over to Rome. And along the way, he was shipwrecked, eventually got there, and probably arrived around 60 A.D., so the book of Philippians is one of four what are called the prison epistles because he wrote them from that time when he was under house arrest uh, in Rome. Number three, the historical context of the writing, as I mentioned, uh, is called a prison epistle. You'll read that as you read commentators, as you read your study Bible. And the recipients, according to, again, verse chapter 1, verse 1, are the saints of Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. And we talked about uh, where that is. Uh, just uh, our more geographically gifted students here. Uh, where would we find the city of Philippi today? In Greece, sure, right? Uh, kind of the south end of Greece, uh, along the old uh, historic Ignatian Way, which was a huge, which was a significant highway in those days. And uh, some occasion. What was the purposes behind the book? We talked about these last time. We see these from the internal evidence of the scripture. Uh, We see in chapter 1, verse 12, Paul was writing in part to inform the Philippians of his experiences in Rome, to encourage them with how the uh, time in prison had been going. He exhorts them to unity in chapter 2, and again in chapter 4. Uh, You'll remember that um, this man named Epaphroditus was the guy who probably took the letter from Paul in Rome and took it all the way down to Greece and delivered it. And uh, Paul thought that this man also would be an encouragement uh, to uh, uh, the Philippians. I'm sorry, the Philippians. Excuse me. The Philippians sent Epaphroditus to him initially to encourage Paul. Along the way, he experienced some sort of near-fatal accident or illness, and uh, so Paul is sending Epaphroditus back to the Philippians. He's delivering the letter that Paul is writing to them, but he's explaining why Epaphroditus is being returned to him. Uh, to warn them about false teachers in chapter 3, and then finally um, to express thankfulness for some monetary support that they had given Paul recently. Okay, Questions on background of the book? Any questions uh, from last week that have been lingering in your mind before we move on? Keith, in that respect, it appears that the church was an ongoing supporter of Paul. That's correct. That's right. That's right. In fact, I don't think I said that last week. But there are a number of places in Scripture where you see that the this was, this was not the first time the Philippians had supported Paul. And as Jack indicated, uh, most commentators are going to say that this was an ongoing uh, support for him. And and I think um, I think that helps that helps us as a church today to see how. Um, Missionaries In this case, like Paul, uh, we see the local support of local churches of those missionaries. So um, there's a good pattern and example there to follow. Good, good observation. Any other questions or observations? Okay, well, let's look at chapter 1, verse 1, and uh, let's uh, read this here. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ. Uh, what do you know about the Apostle Paul? Okay, I thought I was going to put a whole bunch of stuff up here on Paul. I thought, you know what, you guys have been going to church a long time. You guys have been believers a long time. You've been Bible studies. What do you know about Paul? Let's just kind of thumbnail his life uh, for a minute or two here. What's that? He was Roman. Roman. Uh huh. Sure. Pharisee. He was a Pharisee originally. Okay, and what does that mean? Uh, just to remind ourselves, what is a Pharisee? They were very legalistic Jews. Okay, they were very legalistic Jews, highly, uh, trained. highly trained. Okay, what was their role? Leaders of the synagogue. Okay, they were leaders in the synagogue. They were the religious elite. Um, you, you've got you've got a, a number <coughs> of groups of people in in Jewish uh, religious leadership. You've got what were called the elders. You've got the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. Those are the four sort of main groups of. Of people, and they all had different responsibilities. But the Pharisees were considered uh, sort of the, the experts of the law, and and that's in part why they became legalists. Because between the time of the Old Testament closing and the New Testament beginning, there was those 400 years, and in that time, that the Pharisees began adding to the law of God from their tradition. And you remember one of, one of Jesus' favorite things to say to them was, "No, no, no, that's that's your tradition. That's not the word of God." Because they had erected this whole um, addendum to the Old Testament law and had elevated it to the same status as the Word of God. And of course, you're not supposed to add to Scripture. I mean, that's one of the basic commands of the Torah. So, uh, But they were the experts in the law. That, and Paul was one of those highly trained religious leaders. What else do you know about Paul? Where, where was he from originally? Tarsus. Tarsus, Okay, which was a Hellenistic town. It was not... Uh, it was not uh, really a Jewish community like Jerusalem would have been. It was more influenced by the Greek culture. And um, what else do we know about him? Uh, he was not a tax collector, no. That's okay. He persecuted the Christians. We can go back. We won't do this now. But you can go back in the early chapters of Acts, and there was this guy. Um, you, you remember when they when they uh, stoned Stephen, the first martyr in Scripture? Um do you remember what, what Luke, who is writing the account of that in the book of Acts, as they're throwing rocks at Stephen and he's you know, slowly dying? There was a, a young man standing off to the side, holding the coats of some of the men who were throwing rocks at Stephen. Who, who was that man? Do you remember? It was a man named Saul, which was Paul's previous name. Okay, So yes, he was a, a violent persecutor. In fact, he had... Um, I was reminded of this in reading this last week. He had civil authority to persecute Christians. He wasn't just like you know a, a gangster or something like that. And when no one was looking, he'd go persecute them. No, they, he had political civil right rights to actually go with the support of the state and persecute Christians. Okay, and then what happened to him? What happened? The Damascus Road experience. That's right. He was on the way to Damascus. He had a vision, a bright light from heaven. And a voice came and he said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it was Jesus himself calling this man to repentance. And in one of the most incredible conversions of all of Scripture, this Christian killer was turned into not just an apostle and not just a missionary, but but the man who would write most of the New Testament—that's pretty amazing—and um, so that's the Apostle Paul. He he likely was trained by Jesus himself uh, when he uh, departed to Arabia for a number of years. Uh, he came back; his name was changed. Whereas Peter was primarily an apostle to the Jews, Paul was primarily an apostle to who—the Gentiles. Okay, so the two. The two main evangelistic leaders in the New Testament were Peter, and, and, and really the first part of the book of Acts focuses on, focuses on Peter and his ministry to the Jewish community to call them to Christ. And then the second half of the book of Acts is really focused on the Apostle Paul as an apostle to the Gentiles, and it focuses on the gospel going to uh, groups and countries that were not primarily Jewish. Okay. Now, what about uh, this man named Timothy? Timothy. He's not quite as well known as Paul, but what do we know about him? Very good. His father was a Gentile, his mother was Jewish. We we learn about that in Paul's letters of First and Second uh, Timothy. Um, how how did he um, how did he become a Christian? Do you remember? There's some verses in the Book of First Timothy that talk about or Second Timothy that talk about that. His mother and his grandmother. You know, um, you think about all the people involved during the time of Scripture. When the Bible names one of those thousands or millions of people, that's a significant thing, right? We should pay attention when the Bible puts a name, a personal name to somebody. And as Paul is recalling Timothy's conversion, he says, from childhood you have known the sacred writings. You have known the Scriptures from childhood. Well, how did you know those? You learned them. From and then it lists two personal names: his mother and his grandmother. Do you remember those names, by the way? Lois. Eunice. Eunice and Lois. That's right. Very good. Okay. And because his father was a uh, Gentile and his mother was Jewish, um, his conversion was a bit of uh, provoked a bit of controversy because you remember there were a whole bunch of Jewish Christians that didn't think Gentiles should become Christians because they, they saw it as an exclusively Jewish thing and, and that caused a lot of challenges along the way. Um, what else do you know about Timothy? The church at Ephesus. Okay, he was eventually the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And before that, he accompanied Paul on most of his missionary journeys and I think I counted... He ends up ministering on Paul's behalf in something like six or eight different cities before he ends up in Ephesus. So he he would go out with Paul and Paul would say, you know what, you need to go over there and do this. Okay, so he'd go over there and he'd come back. Okay, now you need to go over there and do this. And so he would accompany Paul on the journeys and then he would go off and engage in work that Paul needed him to do as part of his um, ministry there. And uh, this is an old Catholic, uh, I think it's a stained glass uh a stained glass design originally so it, you can tell it looks very Catholic but it's one of the few pictures I could find of Timothy there so there you go I think it's worth pointing out about Timothy too because there are young people here uh-huh. he, was quite young. he was and uh, so to don't worry about how young you are yeah you guys remember that good of one verse let no one go ahead your keep going too, <coughs> okay did you hear that let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself to be an example to those who believe. Okay? and that was Paul's admonition to Timothy. Um, don't don't worry that you're not the oldest guy in the bunch. You know, just be an example. Focus on your character. Um, that's a good good point. Okay, anything else on Timothy before we move on? We'll we'll learn more along the way, but uh, okay, let's look at. Again, chapter 1, Paul and, and Timothy, bondservants. And again, if you've heard MacArthur's sermon or read his book, you know that bondservant is not a good translation of the Greek word doulos. Uh, it means slave, is what it means. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ. Um, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Now remember, saints is not a word for super Christian. Okay, we just had. Okay, see this? Uh, there, some in Christianity would say that's a saint. He's a super Christian. He he, he uh, he's up in this realm up here of, of religious leaders, and then there's you know the rest of us down here. Saint. What does anybody know what the word saint actually means? What does it literally mean? You know? Yeah. Close. You're very close set aside ones set aside ones or holy ones is literally what it means and the bible uses that term not to describe some elite group of Christians it uses it to describe all believers okay? so if you have catholic background or you have some liturgical church background and in your uh, uh, church vocabulary saint means super christian just remember that's not how the new testament uses the word it's how the catholic church uses the word But saint in Scripture is just another word for a believer. Okay, to all the saints, all the believers who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, and that's where we need to kind of pull the car over for a minute and talk about what is an overseer. Okay, and we we may finish this today, we may not. We'll see how far we get here. An overseer. Let's let's talk about what that means. Okay, Um, the word translated overseer is the word episkopos. What, what uh, English word does that sound like, just hearing that? Episcopal. What's that? Epistle. Epistle. Okay, that's close. Another Episcopal. idea? Episcopalian. Okay, if we were to drive down through Acton, there is a church, which is an Episcopal church. Okay, there's a whole denomination built off of that word. Okay, so that, if you've heard it before, that's probably the context in which you've heard it. The word basically means someone who gives oversight, supervision, or guardianship. It is used in the scriptures for an office of leadership in the church. And in some Bible versions, it is translated bishop. How many of you, just looking uh, in your Bible, how many of you, uh, does it say bishop? Anybody have a translation? You have New King James, Bill? Okay. Yeah, the New King James, the King James, from those traditions, typically will translate it bishop. Um, more modern versions of scripture have chosen to not translate it with bishop, even though bishop is a good word but they've chosen to not translate it as bishop because of the association with Roman Catholicism. Because bishop means something very particular in Roman Catholicism. In the Scripture, it's referring to someone who gives oversight, supervision, or guardianship. And and in its technical sense, it refers specifically to an office of leadership in the church. Okay? So far, so good? We're going to look at some of these verses here in just a minute. But... um, now, what's interesting, and this is why I thought it would it'd be helpful to kind of think about this together. Uh, what's interesting is, um, depending on what denominational flavor you come from in your church background, church leadership looks very, very different, doesn't it? Right. If, if you used to go to a Baptist church, you have one type of, um, of leadership. If you came from a Presbyterian church, there's a different type of leadership. If you came uh, from... Calvary Chapel, you know, that's a different leadership, and you know, most churches have a little bit different of a leadership structure, and that's why I thought it would be helpful to talk about this because um, some of you may not be familiar with how the leadership is structured here at Grace. Some of you may be, um, but it's worth talking about why have we organized the leadership of our church the way we have, and uh, so that's what we're going to talk about uh, now. The New Testament uses two other words which describe the same office. Did you know that? The Bible uses three different words to describe the same office of leadership in the church. The first one I told you is episkopos, which usually is translated overseer. The second word is presbyteros. What does that sound like? Presbyterian. Presbyterian, And that's exactly where the name Presbyterian comes from. Presbyteros is usually translated elder in your Bible. And then... Poimene, the the E is a a long E sound, so it actually says A. Poimene is the word for shepherd or pastor. And those three New Testament words are used to describe the same office, the same role of leadership in the local church. Okay? Now... I just, I just made a claim there, and I said, those three words describe the same office. So, that, so the natural question is, how do we know they're describing the same office? How, how do we know they're not talking about different, like three different <coughs> offices? Well, I'm glad you asked that, because we'll talk about that. Okay, but before we do that, let's talk a little bit more, more about uh, these two other words. Presbyteros means an older, more mature person. It, it emphasizes the maturity. This is the same word used in a general sense for an elder, uh, and if we go all the way back to the Hebrew equivalent of that word in the Old Testament, there's a long uh, history of church uh, of leadership uh, in God's economy involving older, more mature men, which uh, the word presbuteros refers to. It can be used in a general sense, but it also has a technical usage which refers to the same leadership office described by Episcopos, and we see... In 1 Timothy 5.19 and 1 Peter 5.1, that word elder being used there. Okay, so far so good? The third word is "poimain," and it means shepherd. it's used in the New Testament both literally to describe those who actually care for sheep. So, when, when, uh, in Luke 2, remember Luke 2, we were just in Christmas, you know, the shepherds were out in the field keeping watch of their flocks by night. Okay, that's 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 the literal word shepherd. But it's also used in a figurative sense to, uh, to describe those who care for and provide for people in some way, in a sort of shepherding, caring kind of way. And we see that in John 10:11, where Jesus says, I am the great shepherd, right? Same word there. But he's, he's not saying, I am the best of the guys that take care of the sheep. No, no, no. He's saying in a figurative sense, I am the one who cares for people. I'm the one who provides for them, and we also see it used in Ephesians 4:11. Uh, okay, so far so good. You okay on that? Now, um, again, how do we know that these three terms refer to the same office? And, and this is where we've got to really put our Bible thinking caps on and, and look through a couple of texts together. And along the way, we'll see some of the texts that we've already mentioned. Uh, let's start off by uh, turning in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter three. <coughs> 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, these are familiar sections of Scripture for probably most of us. But in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is writing to Timothy. Uh, Timothy, he has a, he's a pastor, he's an elder at Ephesus. And he's writing to Timothy to talk to him about what it means to appoint elders. Uh, in the church, uh, chapter three, verse one, is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do, and that's that word episkopos again. Okay, it refers to someone who who oversees or supervises. And then he's going to list a um, a whole bunch of character qualities. Do you see those there? A, a number of character qualities which these overseers these episcopoi whatever whatever they are these men must have these qualifications okay he lists those there we'll, we'll we'll maybe go through those another time but you just see those character qualities there okay now hold your place there flip over to the right just a couple of pages and look at Titus chapter 1 Titus chapter 1 and here Paul is writing in a similar fashion to Titus Now, Terry just preached on Titus, so so hopefully that's still fresh in our minds. As uh, Titus ministers to the churches located on the island of Crete, and right out of the gate, uh, as with the book of 1 Timothy, he tells Titus in chapter 1, verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains, and appoint elders. That's the word Okay, It's the other word. As I directed you, namely, and then he's going to list a series of character traits. Now, here's what I want to ask you. What is significant about those two lists of character traits? What's significant? The one in 1 Timothy 3, the one in in Titus chapter 1. What stands out to you? What's that? They're basically the same. There's a couple of little variations, but they're basically the same. You read them. Uh, In fact, I was going to do this, and I I didn't because I was running out of paper on your notes. But um, if you chart them out in one column and another column, they're almost identical with a couple of minor variations. But notice, Paul says these are describing overseers in 1 Timothy, but he says they're describing elders in Titus. But it's the same list. Isn't that interesting? So, so the, they're, they're used to describe the same character traits for a particular office of leadership. Paul uses overseer in First Timothy, but elder in Titus one. What, what else is also significant is if you look in Titus, if you're still there, okay, in chapter one verse five he calls them elders. Do you see that there? But then in chapter seven, chapter one verse seven, just go down two verses to verse seven. What does he call them? Overseer. Yeah, overseer. Okay? He's using them interchangeably. Do you see that there? They you say, "Oh, well, wait, 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 wait. Why doesn't he just pick one? That would be so much simpler if you just pick a word and not confuse 21st century Christians. There's a reason why he's using two different words. Okay? Just stay with me. All I want you to see right now is that it appears that these words are being used interchangeably to describe the same group of men who function in leadership in the church. Now, look at this. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5. Because 1 Peter is going to give us a little bit of a hint as to why we have three different words. Okay? Three different words. 1 Peter chapter 5. Are you with me? Stand with me? Alright. 1 Peter chapter 5 uses all three terms and it gives us a hint about why these three terms why there would be three terms to describe the same office. Look at chapter 5 of 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore I exhort the elders... Okay, what, what word is that? Presbyteros. That's presbyteros. Among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Verse 2. Shepherd. Ah, okay. That is the verb form of... Pointing, right? It's 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 the verb form of shepherd of pastor. We could say pastor the flock of God among you, and that would be an accurate translation. Exercising, okay. So he says, as the fellow elder, I say to you, shepherd, pastor the flock of God among you, exercising. What's the next word? Oversight. Oversight. You know what that is? Overseer. That's overseer. That's guardian. That's bishop. Okay? In in the form in terms of action. It's, it's the verb form of it, okay? So so watch this. Peter says, as a fellow elder, I'm telling you elders, the churches he's writing to, to pastor the flock of God and to oversee them. You see all three? You see that? I'm getting some deer in the headlights look here. Does that make sense? <laughs> Talk to me. Is that so, so overseers of well, let me do one more passage and then I'll tie it together for you. But all I want you to see right here is he's telling the same. He, he's calling this group of men elders, and he's telling them to pastor and act as overseers. Okay, that's all, that's the hint. Yes, Carrie. In the NIV, it actually just means it as many, that shepherds of God's flock mm-hmm. yeah. serving as overseers. Right. And, and that, may, that may be because um, they're trying to clarify that these are the same men being talked about. The NIV is trying to smooth out the interpretation there. Mm-hmm. Very good. Okay, the last passage we need to go to is Acts chapter 20. And I think, I think this is the passage that really ties it all together for us. <coughs> is this new or is this is this review for most of you? Review or new? 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 Okay, good. Good. All right. Acts chapter 20. Look at verse 17. Paul shows up uh, in Ephesus. And th- this, is, this is one of those heartbreaker sections of, of the book of Acts. Because Paul is going to come to this church that he established in Ephesus. And he's having to leave. And, and this is... It, it's a, I don't know. I picture... If, if there was a movie of the book of Acts, this would be a significant scene. Because of all the information that Dr. Luke gives us about this, this farewell that Paul gives... As he leaves the Ephesian elders, okay. So he comes to the Ephesian elders in Ephesus, and he says, um, he calls them together in verse 17, Acts chapter 20, verse 17, verse 18. And when they had come to him, he said, "You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews." How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. Uh, What we call the public ministry of the Word and the private ministry of the Word. you know, The pulpit ministry and and more the the one-on-one counseling, discipling type ministry is what he's referring to there. Verse 21, Solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound in spirit, I, I am on my way to Jerusalem, Not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, in order that I may finish my course, and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went out preaching the kingdom, will see my face no more. That's why it's a very sad parting here. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of blood of all men, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Okay. So now he turns to sort of admonish them as he leaves. Verse 28, he says, Be on guard for yourselves for all the flock. Now here it is. Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to... Shepherd the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. Okay? That's even stronger than 1 Peter. 1 Peter uses all three terms. In Acts 20, though, he says, as elders, God makes you overseers. Okay? Does that make sense? And what does an overseer do? He shepherds the flock of God. He pastors the flock of God. Okay? Now, does that make sense? Okay? Now, um, I like Pictures. Do you know that? You all like pictures. So think of it like this: Presbyteros, usually translated elder, is emphasizing the maturity of the man. Okay. Episcopos overseer, is emphasizing the oversight, his job, his role. Poimane, shepherd emphasizes how he does his job. He does it with care. He does it gently like a shepherd. Does that make sense? I, I, I should have left you a space there to, to do this, but I'll put it in your notes next week if you want it. Okay? So, so why three words? Because they're describing three different aspects of his role. Does that make sense? Three different aspects. The first, presbyteros, emphasizes his character. Episcopos emphasizes his function. And poimen emphasizes his disposition or the manner in which he goes about uh, ministering to the people. Does that make sense? The, the shepherding picture... See, think about this. You can have a man of great character, who is a wonderful administrator, who is not gentle with people, who doesn't genuinely love people, who isn't um, involved in the life of providing and caring for them. So so shepherd is the picture of how it goes. Presbyteros emphasizes the character of the man... And Episcopos emphasizes his function of guardian or overseer of the people. So, so, um, and this is a great uh, quote from MacArthur. Uh, Elder emphasizes who the man is. Overseer speaks of what he does. Pastor deals with how he ministers. Okay. So, so there's Greg, one of our elders, right there. <laughs> He's right at the intersection there. Okay. Because um, that, that's those are the three words, the three roles, so to speak, that that the Bible calls. Um, an elder to be. Now, in our church, we let, let's think about this. We could we could call them pastors, we could call them shepherds, we could call them elders, we could call them overseers, we could call them old guys. No, no. We, you see, we, we can we can pick any number of. of and, and let me tell you this: the reason we as a church have picked elder is because it is it has the less baggage. In denominations, okay, we we could call them uh, uh, bishops, we could call them pastors, we, okay, but but elder to us has has less baggage from other denominations, so that we're emphasizing what we're really talking about there. Okay, now let me tell you what that means. Some of us in this church as elders have the title pastor, right, and and that, that that's part of it, but of the elders in our church. All of us are involved in all three of these functions. Okay, We all have to be qualified in character. We all have oversight and care, and we all are called the shepherd. So, so what that means is, just because Greg doesn't have pastor technically in front of his name, that doesn't mean he's not called the shepherd, just like Terry and I are. Okay. Um, there, there's no... In terms of function, there, there's not there's not dissimilarity in in all the elders, whether they're staff elders or not. Okay, And we'll talk about why, why do we have staff elders and non-staff elders. We'll talk about that in a minute. But does that make sense before we move on? You good with that? Okay. Questions on that? Yes? It's not a question, it's just a comment. Yeah. I think um, we also need to make sure we, we take this, tell me if I'm wrong, with you, mm-hmm. and separate that from the passages that talk about giftedness. Yeah, that's that's a really good point, actually. Yeah, someone may have a gift of teaching, right? But and fall maybe even within this, but they're still. I mean, we're we're talking this is yeah. all these things you just said, but Very it's good. Not necessarily something that the Lord has gifted you. There you go. To do. That's excellent. I appreciate that because, um, yeah, we're talking about offices of leadership. We're not talking about giftedness now. As as Rich, I think, rightly pointed out, uh, men that are called to be elders in the church have to have certain gifting. In fact, if we went back to 1 Timothy 3, one of the gifts, one of the abilities he has to have is an ability to teach. And um, and I hope for those of you that have been here long enough, you've seen that all the elders teach. You notice that here? It's not just Terry's thing. It's not just my thing. All the elders teach. And even men that have been elders in our church in the past even though they're not functioning as elders now even those men teach David Gibson teaches because he was he was an elder uh, here and, and is still qualified to be an elder he's just not functioning in that role right now so that, that that's part of that gifting that goes with the office but yes, we need to make a distinction between the two other <coughs> questions? alright um, now, uh, what, is, what do elders do? and I, I don't think I gave you any blanks here right? I think I just listed them did I do that? yep Okay, because we're just going to wave our hands at this. But just so you have some information, what does an elder do? What is he called to do? Well, uh, in 1 Timothy 3.5, they're called to take care of the church of God. Uh, In the verses listed there, they have charge over the church. Uh, The verb means to rule over or to have charge over. And again, when you hear the word rule, you think dictator, right? But remember, that's why he's also called a pastor, because the type of oversight that God calls elder to give is not a dictatorial oversight; it's a shepherding oversight. Those who who lead in a sense by example more than anything else. Number three, they are a plurality that operate on the basis of unanimity. Okay, that's hard to say in one sense, but I, I did it. Wow, plurality that operate on the basis of unanimity, uh, and and that's very important. Um, we don't have and and, and can I just say this? If Terry's not here. Can I just say this? T- Terry is a very humble guy. And even though he's the guy in the pulpit every Sunday, um, he is very, very... In fact, he would be the first to tell you th- this is not his church. He's not the lead guy in the sense of, you know, it's a one-man show. There- there's a real plurality here. In fact, we had a phone call this week um, in- involving uh, something, and and it-, it related to how do the elders going to work together on this. And I was able to tell the person, well, we, we function as a plurality we, we function together which means we get together and we talk and we have to come to a unanimous conclusion and if we can't we stop and we don't make the decision because we understand that we're called to be a plurality not a, not a one man show not a lone ranger pastor type of situation and that those leaders operate on the basis of uh, unanimity there uh, number four they preach and teach as we were just talking about that's one of their roles They correct and refute those in error. They shepherd the church. They determine church policy. They ordain others, other pastor elders, for ministry. They devote themselves primarily to prayer and the ministry of the Word. We see that in the book of Acts. That um, One of the reasons that we have deacons as well in the church is because uh, the, the elders cannot oversee everything Uh, They're primarily called to prayer and the ministry of the Word, and others, like elders, come alongside to assist them in some of the other duties. And finally, they equip believers for ministry to one another in the church. Okay. Again, that's not meant to be exhaustive, but that's just some of the things that the Bible calls elders to do. Does that make sense? Now, um, why does GBC have staff and non-staff elders? I'll let you guys take a stab at this. Money. <laughs> All right. Money. Would you like to expand on that? Who was that? It came from over here. I didn't see it. Oh, you said it. Okay. Oh, you're not going to expand on it. Okay. So I, put, so I shouldn't put you on the spot. and, um, and Maybe we'll look at this next time, but... For a long time, you know, the church has had a a clergy, non-clergy, clergy, clergy, layperson uh, distinction. And there are times when making that distinction is helpful. But the the negative part of that is, number one, sometimes it makes it seem like it's only the leaders in the church that are supposed to be doing the work. Now, this is Grace Bible Church, and, and all of you are very involved in one way or another here, so you guys... You guys know what the Bible really says about that, You don't fall into that. Um, But but one of of the challenges is this whole staff versus non-staff issue. And uh, maybe we will talk about this next time. But 1 Corinthians 9 basically says a man who functions functions as an elder um, should be compensated by the body if he wants to. But it's up to him. And and we'll look at that text because what happened was Paul was saying there were elders as he writes to the church at Corinth and saying the church should be supporting those men for the work that they do. But Paul and Silas were saying even though uh, we can sort of claim that uh, uh, privilege as well, we are choosing not to be compensated by the church. And you remember they, they were bivocational. For most of his ministry, Paul was bivocational. He he worked and then he also ministered. So so, he, so here's here's what I take away from this, and then we'll look at it more <coughs> in detail next time. The the Bible says that that elders have the privilege of being compensated by the local church for what they do, but some elders may choose to not take advantage of that privilege, and that's what makes the distinction between staff and non-staff elders in in one sense. Um, so like for example. Um, Russell and Greg are not financially compensated by the church, even though they function as elders here. One of the upsides of being a staff elder here is Terry and I can focus our whole time on what goes on here, whereas Greg and Russell, like Paul and Silas, had to divide their time between their their sort of day job and then their ministry as an elder in the local church. So one advantage of being staff is uh, that more work can be done and more focus can be given there. Okay. Does that make sense? Um, so we, we might, I was just going to kind of wave my hands at that, but we might come back and talk about that verse because I think that's a really good question and uh, it's worthy of uh, some future study. So. so why don't we put a comma in our notes uh, for the morning and uh, we'll pray. Okay.